Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And this week, I'm going to be speaking to book author and John Hopkins University scholar Yasha Monk about an ideological movement that many of us dislike, but which seems to elude proper objective description. Some call it wokeness, a word that once felt right, but now feels more like an overbroad culture war term of abuse, rather than a proper descriptor. Others call it social justice fanaticism, but that seems too charitable. True social justice is a good thing that helps the world's poor and oppressed in real material ways, while the fashionable ideology we're talking about is more about wealthy, privileged people arguing about things like correct pronoun usage and race quotas for casting Broadway musicals. As Monk argues in his new Penguin Press book, The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time, this is all a problem. Because how can you fight an ideology if you can't even properly describe it in a way that most people on both sides will agree is accurate? As an internationally recognized academic expert in the history of modern intellectual movements, Monk is no ordinary culture warrior. And in his new book, he convincingly traces the evolution of the identity synthesis. Spoiler alert, that's the term he came up with for the ideology formerly known as wokeness. By reference to the ideas of Karl Marx... Michel Foucault, Edward Said, Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak, and Noam Chomsky. So strap in, we're not exactly talking about the Barbie movie here. At its root, Monk argues, the identity synthesis is an intellectual movement that rejects liberalism's focus on colorblindness, free speech, individualism, and ideological pluralism, while also rejecting Marxism's promise of a better future in which society's divisions are healed. Instead, the identity synthesis, wokeness, illiberal leftism, social justice fanaticism, whatever you want to call it, gives us the worst of both worlds. Not only does it challenge the freedoms and sense of equality offered by liberalism, it does so in the service of what's essentially a dystopian vision of the future, in which blacks, women, and LGBT citizens are perpetually doomed to suffer at the hands of more privileged groups, who in turn are commanded to joylessly interrogate their political souls in perpetuity. But if you're looking for a simple fire and brimstone denunciation of the identity synthesis, this isn't it. Monk's analysis here is nuanced and balanced. His goal is not to simply denounce the identity synthesis, but to understand how leftists got to it in good faith and how they can be rescued from its dead-end fixation on identity and returned to the path of liberalism. So your book's called The Identity Trap, and your publisher had the good sense to to give it what I think is a good title. (laughs) In the actual book, you use the term identity synthesis, which when I saw it, it, it reminded me of like a 1980s time travel movie where multiple timeline versions of yourself is produced and you come out of the time machine and you have to go through an identity synthesis or something. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded a little science fiction-y. It's like prepare the identity synthesis chamber. <laughs> and then the other thing is that... I'm not a trackie, but I, I can see that being a talking point on Star Trek. Well, also you are an academic although your book is not written in an academic style, but the word synthesis is kind of like 
sounds like almost like praxis or epistemology, like you're getting into jargony territory. Give us a thumbnail description of what you mean by identity synthesis, because I got the sense you wanted to avoid a culture war term. You maybe wanted to pick a term that both sides could buy into. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Look, um, you know, the book is an attempt uh, to explain the origins of a set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation, which has become so dominant in our intellectual discourse and in our politics. I then explain how those ideas went from being pretty influential in universities in, in, in 2010 to actually taking over many aspects of, of American, Canadian, British, Australian, but also Western European, also beyond institutions in the decade between 2010 and 2020. I then do a philosophical critique of the main application of these ideas in areas from free speech to cultural appropriation. I am critical of it. And so, so, so I, I always wanted a title which makes it clear that ultimately I'm critiquing those ideas. Yeah, it is a trap. And so I never thought about... Synthesis sounds good. It's like, well, we're synthesizing. I mean, it's neutral, right? It's just it's like it's, 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 it synthesizes different influences. But, but I didn't want it to be a polemical book. It's a critical book. It's a book that argues against these ideas, but it, it does it in a serious way, actually helping us understand them and then engage with them and, and, and argue against it. And so I, I think part of the problem of this moment is that we don't have a neutral term that picks out that ideology, right? Mm. But conservatism, liberalism, socialism, uh, people will like these ideologies or they will dislike them, but somebody who's a socialist and somebody who thinks socialism is really bad can agree that there right. is an ideology called socialism and that socialism is the right term for that ideology. That doesn't exist for the ideas I talk about. So we can talk about identity politics, but I think that's too broad. Yeah. Um, there's some forms of identity politics that are natural and normal in every democracy, and so the term doesn't quite work. You can say woke, which is sort of a fine term for a while. It was actually a term that was invented by the people who believe in the ideology. People used to proudly say, I am woke. Now it's sort of just, you know, if you write a whole book about wokeness, yeah. you just sound a little bit like an old man, you know, shouting at the clouds. And so I needed a term that would facilitate the serious conversation. And I came up with identity synthesis, not because I think it's particularly piffy or I have particular hopes of it catching on, but because it does two things. It shows that these ideas are centered around identity, that really the fundamental transformation of our intellectual life is in how central we now think the groups into which we are born are to who we are and how we should treat each other and what kind of society we have. And it is a synthesis of these different ideas that I trace in the first part of the book, but flow out of postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. It takes ideas and themes from each of those traditions and sort of mixes them up in this distinctive way. And that's really how we get to this present moment. Okay. So you didn't want to write a culture war book. You didn't want to write a denunciation of cancel culture and wokeness because that seems kind of stale and like wokeness has become wokeness is now anything people don't like that said the book contains a lot of stories a lot of anecdotes of call it the excesses of the identity trap the identity synthesis uh, i remember there's one story of uh, an educator who came from africa and uh, he had two white students in his class and it was a high school class and they were wearing, I forget, it was Nigerian or Kenyan garb on his invitation, and it was very nice. And then the school administrator said, no, no, you can't do it. That's cultural appropriation. I forget how the story turned out. Not well, probably. But there's a lot of stories like that in the book. But you're presenting them more in, in the, the vein of, look, this is a symptom of this larger intellectual phenomenon. However, that said, the stories themselves are maddening. And so 
you're trying to be above the fray. You don't want it to be like an Ann Coulter book where it's just a hundred stories that boil your blood. On the other hand, the stories are so enraging that it, it kind of takes over the reader's emotional reaction to it. Like, did you feel you were walking a fine line when you wrote this, that you had to show some of the negative repercussions of the intellectual currents you're describing, but you don't want to make it just another catalog of woke nightmare stories? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think so. And that stories that I, that I wrote and took back out, and uh, I really thought about which stories to use. And I guess now that I'm reflecting on it, sort of a criteria that I applied sometimes explicitly in my mind, sometimes implicitly, where first of all, uh, stories that have real stakes. Mm. So there's a lot of really maddening stuff that happens, but it doesn't have high stakes. And so I think it's easy for anti-anti-woke people to dismiss critics of the ideology and of some of the cultural changes, institutional changes we've had in the last decade as, oh, you guys are just upset that somebody criticized you on Twitter, right? That kind of line. So I wanted to show stories that actually have real stakes. So a story that, that I start the book with is about a mother in suburban Atlanta who wants to uh, have a particular teacher for her kids. And usually that's something the school allows people to do. And I think she was a black woman too, if I remember. She was a black woman, yes. Um, these, these, were, these were black kids. Um, and she was told, oh, you, you, you can't have that teacher, that's not the black class. And she was told yeah. that by somebody who's herself a black woman, the principal of a school, and who's a progressive, somebody who is quote, quote, woke, right? And so that matters not just because it's consequential that these kids are being stereotyped in this way, but because it shows as, as a symptom the much wider way in which we now have embraced these forms, what I'm calling progressive separatism in our educational system, right? I have a story about the vaccine rollout and the pandemic and the way in which sort of misguided considerations about equity ended up with a policy that was much messier, much much less effective, much harder to implement and probably killed more people, more white people, but also more non-white people, I think. And so so, I, so one criterion was, you know, which of these stories really matter? Which of these stories show that we're not just arguing over, you know, little kerfuffles on Twitter, we're arguing about stuff that, that really matters. And then the other is that, it, that, that I want the stories to be illustrative, right? When possible, I want them to be illustrative of why is this principle that people are putting forward wrongheaded? And why is it that I can provide a liberal principle, a philosophically liberal principle that explains better what's going on in the world and that, that points more easily towards a better future? So, 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 so one example of this, and this is not a story of a work excess, it's, it's a story, I suppose, of good old-fashioned uh, offensive behavior from this fraternity at Baylor University that, that hosted a Cinco de Drinco party, a kind of, you know, persiflage of a Cinco de Mayo uh, party. And a lot of their mostly white fraternity members turned up wearing sombreros and ponchos or maids' outfits and construction vests. And, and, and that story, for example, serves a particular purpose because I really worry about people saying cultural appropriation is bad. And any time that you have a member of one culture sort of appropriating the culture of somebody else, that's something that we should be worried about. Because I think mutual cultural influence is a really, really good and positive thing. So why that particular story? Because it helps to show that cultural appropriation does not explain the wrong-making feature of this party. I think these kids were being offensive. But what was making them offensive is that they were mocking their fellow students. They were trying to communicate implicitly that all that Latinos are good for is to be, you know, maids and construction workers, right? But the people who, who donned those maids' outfits or those construction vests were not committing cultural appropriation because a maids' outfit is not, in fact, a traditional part of Latino culture. 
And so you can't actually use the language of cultural appropriation to explain what was wrong about that. And that shows that that's just the wrong term to use. That when you talk about cultural appropriation, you render, quote unquote, problematic things that really aren't problematic, that are in fact a healthy feature of a contemporary, diverse, progressive, dynamic society. And on the other hand, you can't actually explain some of the things that really are bad. So there I used an example really to illustrate and analyze our thinking about this. As you're saying it, it's, it's, it's hard to think of any fraternity party I ever attended in university that wasn't offensive in some way. Remember specifically Zeta Psi and McGill University used to have an annual Irish wake where one member of the fraternity would volunteer to get so drunk that he'd become unconscious. They would then put him in a mock coffin and, and pretend it was the wake for him, which no one complained about on cultural grounds. It was just seen as an incredibly bad taste, regardless of what culture you came from. And 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 potentially dangerous. I I, I mean, I, yeah. I in some ways regret not having gone to an American university because I, you know, so I studied history and intellectual history, actually, which prepared me for this book. But it was very narrow, right? I was I went to college in England where you study one subject and that's it. And in some ways, I wish I'd had a, a you know, a U.S. American or Canadian um, uh, university education where you can take courses in all kinds of different things. But then I hear stories about American fraternities and I think perhaps I don't regret. So let's get into the weeds of, I guess, your real specialty, which is the history of intellectual movements. I love the part of your book where you talk about Marxism, because I think there is this lazy conservative reflex where you see people throw around the term cultural Marxism. And the idea is that modern again, identity politics, identity synthesis, I'm just going to call it the identity trap, that it's just somehow a new version of Marxism, but with multiculturalism sort of layered over it. You make the point, and I don't have your intellectual pedigree, but I have tried to make this point when I'm talking to conservatives, that if Marx were around today, he would be horrified to see his name attached to this stuff. Because Marxism was a universalist movement. In 1903, there was a famous episode in which Leon Trotsky, who, of course, probably the most famous Jewish communist, that he publicly condemned the Bund movement, which was the, the general Jewish labor Bund in Eastern Europe, which was essentially kind of the Jewish wing of the communists in this. This is before the, the Russian Revolution, of course, because Trotsky, who was a Jew, his position was that this is national isolationism. And the Jews didn't have a future in his mind as a nation, but they should be part of this collective universalist spirit that animated Marxism. In many ways, Marxism is directly contrary to the, the identity trap ethos. Oddly, in these discussions, I find myself defending Marx. I think he would be horrified to see his class-based analysis, his universalistic analysis, I mean, as wrongheaded as it was in many ways applied to what's fundamentally a parochial movement. No, I agree with you. So I think there's differences between Marxism and the identity trap. So, uh, you know, the first is sort of admitted by the people who call it cultural Marxism, right? Because implicit in that is that, you know, Marxism is economic. Mm -hmm. It's based on class struggle. Whereas wokeness is cultural Marxism, right? So so they acknowledge that it, it involves taking out the economic dimension. But it, it presents no even theoretical possibility for universalistic reconciliation of the groups. At yeah, least so, in a so class-based analysis, you can use the levers of state to bring different socioeconomic groups together by force if necessary, but you can't forcibly change someone's skin color. 
Yeah, so that's the second part. So the first, the obvious difference is the one that's acknowledged by people who call it cultural Marxism, because because implicit in the term cultural Marxism is that there is that difference, right? The second difference, which I think is a more important, but, but, and by the way, that's not a trivial one, right? You can say, oh, it's just the cultural form of Marxism, but a fundamental to Marxist thought is that the main motor of history is class struggle, that workers of the world unite irrespective of your race and gender and sexual orientation and skin color. That was really most important about people is their economic status rather than something else. So, so there's a little bit, even as, as they're acknowledging that there's this difference, there's a little bit of a sleight of hand because it's sort of saying, you know, non-economic Marxism is nearly a contradiction in terms because of how fundamental that category is to Marxism, right? So that's the first point. The second point then is that even beyond that, there is a promise of a post-revolutionary utopia in Marxism, which is very interestingly absent from the identity trap. So what Marxists say, and I'm not a Marxist, but what they say is, look, we have class struggle and we're going to have a revolution. And then a little bit of a black box, we don't know exactly how, but one day we'll have a real communist yada, yada, society. Yada, 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 exactly. And boom, there's no classes. And Marx himself left that fairly ill-defined, by the way. But at least it has this liberatory promise, right? Like when you ask a Marxist, what society are you wishing for? It's not a society where the bourgeoisie is hounded down every day. And no, they want a post-class society where we're all brothers, where we all can stand solidarity with each other, where there's no longer a need to go and block up the bourgeoisie because, because the bourgeois have become proletarians like everybody else. So, so there is actually a kind of promise of a society that you can see why people would have found that attractive. What's interesting about the the identity synthesis, the identity trap, is that it's completely dispensed with that, right? What is somebody today who has this progressive ideology most allergic to is to say what we should really aim for is a post-racial society, right? What we should really try to create is this, we acknowledge that obviously in, in history, which groups you, you've been a part of has led to terrible forms of discrimination. Today in our society, yes, certain forms of disadvantage and 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 discrimination persist, but what we should really aim for is a society where what group you are part of matters less rather than more, in which we don't treat each other according to our race, but according to all being Americans, all being humans, right? That is the philosophically liberal point of view that, that drives people who have embraced the identity trap most mad, most wild, because they say, no, that's precisely the false promise of liberalism that we must reject. We want to build a society in which how we treat each other in this conversation and how the state should treat us in various kinds of contexts should explicitly depend on the kind of group of which we're a part. So there's this interesting structural dissimilarity between Marxism, which did often or did always have this ultimate universalist promise, and the identity trap, which explicitly rejects, even within its own cultural terms, that kind of universal problem. So that's the second difference. And then the third difference is that when you look at the actual intellectual history, the identity synthesis originates in thinkers like Michel Foucault, who explicitly reject Marxism and who are seen as enemies by the people in the societies who are Marxists. Of course, Foucault was obsessed with the idea of the hoarding of power and oppression, but he saw it as so ubiquitous and inevitable that he was very suspicious of any kind of meta narrative or any kind of heroic intellectual movement to deliver people from these phenomena because he just saw it as kind of the lot of humanity to inflict oppression on people and power was embedded in 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 narratives so just all the stories we tell whether religion media 
power imbalances are embedded in that. And it was a kind of nihilism. You talk about this very interesting debate that took place between Foucault and Chomsky, where with Chomsky basically calling Foucault out and saying, look, you know, I'm interested in creating a better society. You're interested in having this arid debate about the nature of power. Which one of us is going to lead to a better world? The line between Foucault and modern identity politics is not nearly as direct as the caricature on the conservative side would have you believe, right? No, I don't think it is. So I do think that Foucault is the originator of these ideas, much more so than than Marx or Marcuse or those kind of Marxist. Power and oppression. Yes. So I think that there's a few fundamental ideas in Foucault that really go on to found the version for the sort of vulgarized and popularized version of these ideas that have become so dominant today. And and fundamental to that is Foucault's rejection of the idea of, of absolute truth and his rejection of grand narratives, what he calls grand narratives, which are these sort of structuring uh, ways of understanding Including our history. And exactly. And so he rejects philosophical liberalism, yeah. right? So he is an opponent of our constitutional democracies for that reason, but he also rejects in exactly the same manner and exactly the same breath uh, Marxism. And that makes him the lifelong enemy of people like Jean-Paul Sartre, um, who, who really are Marxists, mm-hmm. um, who really do think that Marxism is, you know, the only living philosophy of the 20th century. And they hate Foucault for, for his rejection of it. So, you know, uh, Foucault made many bad uh, uh, political calls in his life, but unlike nearly all the other French leftists, he stands in solidarity uh, with Solidarność, with a Polish trade union movement that mm-hmm. ends up bringing down the, the, the communist regime there, right? So, 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 so this is not a superficial point for him. So, so, so that's an important difference. And, and his emphasis on, on, on discourses is important. That part feels very 2023, right? Absolutely. And so, and, and so that's sort of, you know, he thinks basically, look, real power isn't from the state down. It's not from public policy and laws and Congress and the army. The way we're talking to each other is an exercise of power because mm-hmm. we're setting this discourse. Um, and people then politicize it later, people like Edward Said and his followers to say, uh, you know, Foucault just wants to describe that. He thinks one discourse is going to be as oppressive as the next. That's why he's apolitical. That's why Noam Chomsky in this debate is shocked by him. Say, it says he is, but Chomsky told me this, he's, he's the most amoral, not immoral, but the most amoral person uh, uh, I have ever met. And you interviewed Chomsky in 2021. Yeah, I, I I don't agree with him on on on, on many things, but uh, we did both sign the Harper's letter. So we have that in common. And And it was an interesting conversation. He was quite shockingly cavalier about many of the things going on in China today, which is one of the interesting pieces of it. But it was interesting to ask him about this this debate with with, with Foucault. And he was really you know, genuinely shocked by the apolitical nature of, of Foucault. But the politicized version of what Foucault says about discourse uh, is our politics in 2023. What is it to be a feminist in 2023? Well, you might think about some law or something like that, but really it is to praise or critique or whatever the Barbie movie, right? Mm. That is what it is to do feminist politics today. I mean, in fairness, abortion obviously has reared its head as a hugely important issue. There are real issues that feminists have to... to no, no, of course. But, but what I mean is that a lot of these movements, you know, the sort of critique of cultural representations and critique of popular culture and and thinking about the way we use terms and prescribing what terms you should use, that has become this huge part of how you do politics precisely because of Foucault's recognition that a lot of power in here's in discourse rather than those most straightforward mechanisms of power. I don't mean to be reductive about it. No, no, um, I just, I'm conscious of the fact we're both men and, 
I know that my my boss has strong thoughts about the Barbie movie, so I, I want to tread carefully here. <laughs> but I think Foucault would also hate this political moment. So one of the most famous things that Foucault talks about in is... Fairness, is he not... hated everything, right? I mean, he's... Well, that is true. Yeah, I mean, it's not I mean, much like... of an assumption to say he would hate <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but his biggest fear was a panopticon, right? The, the model of a prison Bentham. in which there's a guard in the middle of his watchtower and the cells are arranged in such a way that he can walk, walk you know, in theory, be watching any of the cells at any one time. So if you're a prisoner you have to self-regulate over time. So you don't know when you might be being watched. And so even if you're never being punished, you, you always have this fear of punishment that makes you self-discipline. And, you know, what is that other than description of Twitter in 2020, 2021, right? What is that other than a public sphere in which we have these forms of expressing ourselves to each other over time, but also of watching each other over time, of of being watched over time, in which people can suddenly be fired or get in trouble for the wrong tweet or the wrong like on Twitter. And so we never quite know where the line is. We always have to self-discipline and anticipatory obedience. I think Foucault would have been really perturbed by the way in which we, you know, the, the tools of what you would call discipline have become so much more powerful today. So I have a section at the end of part one, it's called careful what you wish for, mm. um, which is a common intellectual predicament. Um, but I think that, that Foucault and some of the other sophisticated thinkers that I Chronicle, like Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak, with whom I have deep disagreements, but who are smart, interesting people, would be horrified by what became of their ideas in the form of people, for example, like Robin DiAngelo or Ibram X. Kendi. You introduce another thinker, and that's Spivak, who, who you just mentioned. She did something that I found very interesting, and this was new to me until I didn't know until I read your book, is that she produced this bridge concept between the arid nihilism of Foucault, but also the real world imperative of advancing the the interests of people who are currently oppressed. And I think she called it strategic essentialism. And when I saw that term and saw how you described it, I remember thinking, how come this woman and the term strategic essentialism aren't more famous? Because it sounds a lot like the animating premise of the identity trap. Yeah, I think it really is. So, you know, you start with Foucault, who, who puts in place some of the basic intellectual foundations, the, the skepticism about truth, the rejection of grand narratives, including liberalism as well as Marxism, the attention to political discourses. The, the next step is, is, is Said taking the amoral description of these discourses in Foucault and politicizing them, saying, look, it's absolutely right that we should care about discourses, but the point is to change the discourses as an exercise and a tool of political power. And that gets you to a lot of sort of our political discourse today. And then the next key step, and here we're, you know, in the post-colonial tradition, which unites Said and Spivak, even for the quite different thinkers, that is this idea of strategic essentialism. Now, Spivak is originally from, from Kolkata in India. She is deeply concerned about what she calls the subaltern, the, the, the poorest, most oppressed people in, in the world, many of whom in, you know, living in the city that she grew up in famously a very poor city in, 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 in the middle 20th century. And she comes to renown as a translator and interpreter of postmodern and post-structuralist political thought. She has a famous uh, introduction of you know, one of the key post-structuralist texts, which is how she makes her name in the academy. So she buys the skepticism that people like Foucault have about basic identity categories. Right, Foucault in our terms is gay or homosexual, but he rejects that term. He thinks that is a constraining understanding of 
the variety of sexual experience. And, and in general, we should be really skeptical of any kind of category of identity. Another way in which Foucault is quite different from today. And there's this, this exchange that he has with a post-structuralist thinker where they say, look, it's, it's time for intellectuals to stop speaking for the masses, right? People like Marxists actually say that we have a vanguard of intellectuals. We, uh, we have a vanguard of a proletariat. We intellectuals speak for the people who can't speak for themselves. And they say, no, 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 no. It's time for workers and so on to speak for themselves. Not our this horrified other for. intellectuals at the time. It, it did, it did. And, and it horrified Spivak, right? Who's deep in that tradition, who buys the attack on essentialist accounts of identity that is associated with these postmodern and post-structuralist thinkers, who agrees that there is not really objectively such a thing as a proletarian or even such a thing as, as a white person or even such a thing as, as a man or woman, right? Um, but for political purposes, that's not good enough. Perhaps a proletarian in the streets of Paris can really speak for themselves. They've had an education, they have voting rights, they have all kinds of things. Well, the, the subaltern around the world may not speak be able to speak for themselves. The people in, in Kolkata who may not have been able to get an elementary school education, they can't speak for themselves in the same way. We need to be able to speak for them. So how do we resolve this contradiction? And this is where she comes up with this puzzling term, which she admits is kind of self-contradictory, of strategic essentialism. And what essentialism says, means assigning an essential series of characteristics to, to different groups. Yes. So essentialism means, you know, basically taking for granted the naive idea of what a group is, right? It's thinking there's white people and there's black people and there's Latino people and Asian American people. And there's some rational way in which we can ascribe people to those groups. That would be an essentialist belief, right? And she thinks, look, like philosophically, I buy that that doesn't really make sense. That's kind of wrong, right? But for strategic purposes, to allow the subaltern to be a, to, to fight back for, for me as an intellectual to be able to speak on behalf of these groups that can't speak for themselves, we have to sometimes act as though these essentialist accounts of identity were true. That is the strategic element of it. And this, of course, becomes hugely influential today. When you go to any training on campus about race, you know, run by a, a assistant dean for whatever, whatever, they're going to say something along the lines of, Race is a social construct. Mm -hmm. It's totally fake. It has no biological reality. Da, 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 da. But we're all racial beings. Well, that's why this term, this term racialized, I don't know if it's popular in other countries, but in Canada, it, it now appears in, in legislation, which allows politicians and academics and activists to bridge this contradiction. They say, well, of course, I don't believe in race. I think it's ridiculous. However, all of these millions of people have been racialized in the sense that they've been victimized by the artificial construct of race. It does create this bizarre situation where you have whole cadres of progressives obsessed with talking endlessly about something that they don't think exists. You know, I share the belief that there's no biological basis to race in any straightforward way. And I share the belief that obviously in some contexts it's important to talk about race, when you talk about the history of chattel slavery in the United States, you obviously need to talk about race. But we should always bear in mind that these are artificial categories that that we should therefore be very wary of incorporating in, in, in positive legislation. And we precisely don't want a society in which how you treat it will in a lasting way depend on this arbitrary category that you've been put into. But the strange function of terms like racialized or the broad idea of strategic essentialism is to acknowledge the philosophical reasons to be quite skeptical about mm. these identity categories, but then be able to go on and 
quite unthinkingly operate with identity categories. So if you're white, you're a privileged person, you have to check your privilege and you're going to be treated in a particular kind of way. And if you're from a different ethnic group, then you know you must be marginalized and oppressed, even if perhaps you have a child of millionaire immigrants, right? It's a way of being quite simplistic in your analysis of a current reality while pretending to have understood the point about about this. Um, and one interesting footnote, by the way, is Spivak herself as the main example of how you're going to then use these strategic forms of essentialism says, well, women, it's kind of hard exactly to say what women will have in common. It's unclear that we will have an essential characteristic that we share. But for political purposes, we should act as though that was the case anyway. And so I'm going to have I'm going to define a woman by the fact of having a clitoris, Mm. which, of course, interestingly, today would be controversial for very different reasons. Yeah, we don't have time to get into that. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But the book's very interesting. It's sort of a hybrid of tales ripped from Twitter, but also some fairly deep analysis of, of some of the most important thinkers of the 20th century. And one of them, very interesting person you give a lot of ink to is Derek Bell, who was a pioneering African-American thinker. I thought it was very interesting. You got into his background a little where he was very excited about doing civil rights work and then got discouraged from it a little bit unexpectedly by a hero who he looked up to, an intellectual hero. And he sort of drifted away from the courtroom approach to civil rights because he got disillusioned with it. I, as I read it, your book, I started to think of Derek Bell as a kind of proto-critical race theorist, in that he was somebody willing to look behind the pro forma legal equality provided by civil rights legislation and stuff like that. And Bell, controversially, he came to be skeptical of efforts to desegregate schools. As soon as you desegregate a school, other things happen the white parents whose kids are in the school, they, they move to the suburbs. Maybe the school gets shut down or it gets defunded. The power structure finds a way to punish the people who go to these desegregated schools. And he talked about talking to black parents. And what they really wanted was good schools for their kids. They didn't care so much if it was a black school or a white school. What they cared about was their kids were getting a good education. In a way, the seeds of the progressive rejection of civil rights era liberalism really goes back to the civil rights era itself. Yeah, no, I think completely. And that's one of the things that I find so frustrating in the discussion today about things like critical race theory, where, you know, on the right, there are people who say, you know, wanting to talk about slavery in schools is woke or whatever. It's slightly overstated. Most American schools do actually teach about slavery and so on. But but there is definitely that kind of instinct, certainly on the worst corners of Twitter, where, you know, just wanting your compatriots to be treated in fair ways is somehow woke and terrible, right? Or a form of critical race theory. Um, And that's genuinely disturbing. But then as a result, a lot of my friends and colleagues, a lot of smart people say, well, you know, all that wokeness is and all that critical race theory is, is just wanting to grapple with the injustices of American or Canadian or European history. Um, It's just wanting people to be treated fairly. And that's what critical race theory was all about. It's like, no, go back and read the founding figures of critical race theory, including Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. And they were explicitly setting themselves up against the civil rights movement, right? So Derek Bell is a really interesting figure. Again, smart, thoughtful uh, guy. I enjoyed reading him in many ways, for I profoundly disagree with him, um, who heroically 
does work with the NAACP to desegregate schools and businesses and other institutions throughout the American South in the 60s. Wants really badly to be a civil rights lawyer. And then starts to say, hey, this isn't quite working out as we think. And he comes to agree, as he explicitly acknowledges, with segregationists. At times he cited racist segregationists. Yeah. So the critique from a lot of the sort of segregationists is, oh, we civil rights lawyers sweeping into our town, wanting to desegregate the schools because of their like ideology of desegregation. They're not really working for the interests of their clients. They just pretend to be working for the interests of their clients. Really, they're just trying to impose their ideology on us. And Derek Bell says, having worked in this context for a long time, uh, that is in fact right, because a lot of black parents, and this is understandable, say, hey, these lawsuits often take 10 years, and then afterwards the schools aren't always great anyway. I just want my kid to have a good education, right? It was a perfectly understandable perspective in that specific context. But Bell says, in fact, that's what a lot of the civil rights movement is. It's imposing our ideology rather than listening to what, what, what black people want. And so perhaps the real solution would not have been Brown versus Board of Education, the famous landmark case, but it's to have schools that are separate but truly equal, to actually fund black schools better so that they continue to be segregated, but they have a better instructional quality. That's the conclusion he comes to again and again in his work. And so from the beginning, he explicitly rejects what he calls, uh, quote unquote, the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. He makes fun of We Shall Overcome, one of the key songs of the civil rights movement, right? So so, so, so the, 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 the tradition of, of critical race theory isn't just, hey, you know, let's celebrate the, the, the civil rights movement and let's continue to fight against injustices today and let's teach about slavery. It is from the beginning rejecting the core tenets of the civil rights movement. So I think that's really important to understand. And then the key part of that rejection is the attitude towards universalism. So you go to one tradition of black political thought in the United States, which is, I think, one of the proudest and, and most profound political traditions in, in, in America, uh, which is the black liberal tradition, starting with Frederick Douglass, Tudor Martin Luther King, and some thinkers today. And they basically say, look, you know, I'm invited, Frederick Douglass says, to speak of his 4th of July celebration. This is hypocritical. There's slavery mm. in the United States. How can you criticize, how can you celebrate those ideals? But he's not saying these ideals are false. He's not saying rip up those ideals. He's saying extend those ideals to us. You're being mm. hypocrites as long as you're not allowing us to enjoy those principles as much as you're celebrating them and being happy that you have them. We want to be included under those principles. Free speech to Frederick Douglass is not, as many progressives today would say, some kind of fraudulent thing which just empowers the powerful. No, it is the dread of tyrants. It is the one thing that allows the oppressed, the the, the the voiceless to make the voices heard to fight for their interests. And Martin Luther King doesn't say, he points out that the check written to African-Americans from the Bank of Justice is fraudulent, but he doesn't say, let's rip it up. He says, mm. they it must cash the check. It must actually live up to its promises. So I think this is the fundamental debate that we're having. You have a section on on Barack Obama which I thought was fascinating because if you go back to the Obama era, especially when Obama was first elected, there was a liberal football spike moment where it was like black president, achievement unlocked. You had Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, Barack Obama, the most powerful politician, entertainer, and most popular athlete in the United States. They were all black people. And yet seen in retrospect, Barack Obama 
although at the time he was the most liberal president in the history of the United States, he's kind of a conservative figure in the sense that he explicitly embraced the Frederick Douglass idea. I mean, he, he absolutely did not embrace a separatist idea of Black existence in the United States. But you also talk about the kind of strangely negative reaction that many progressives had because they were like, oh, no, now this fact that there's a Black president is going to be thrown at us as proof that the liberal project is actually successful. And they became oddly resentful of the fact of the Obama presidency, which kind of comes full circle to our discussion of the difference with Marxism, where, you know, Marxism, there's there's a new Jerusalem at the end, you know, there's a worker's paradise. But to the extent Obama might have been seen as maybe a sign that you were going to get to some hallowed place where blacks and whites were, were equal in the United States, that was seen as a false messiah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, part of, uh, so the first point to say is that, again, the, the members of a tradition of critical race theory are explicit in saying, as Kimberly Crenshaw put it in, in 2011 or 2012, that Barack Obama is fundamentally at odds with the basic tenets of critical race theory, right? She created the idea, or at least the formal designation critical the, race the theory. The term stems stems from her, and she's a key person in that tradition. So again, the idea that sort of critical race theory is just sort of good old Obama-era leftism is, is wrong with, from the inception. The biggest say, no, no, Obama is... In some ways, the enemy, very respectful of him and appreciative of him as the black, first black president. But they say, no, fundamentally, that longing for post-racial society is the worst possible thing. And his political ideology is fundamentally at odds with with, with a kind of America that, that, that we're hoping for. And so I do think that in a strange way, you know, there's the argument that some people have made that Trump is a reaction to Obama. I think we're maybe partially right. I'm not sure that I quite buy that story, but I think there's a partial truth in it. In the same way, there's probably a partial truth to the fact that the left wanted to differentiate itself from Obama after the initial enthusiasm saying everything hasn't been fixed and we're still angry and there's still stuff that doesn't work great, some of it for good reason, then drives a much more radical form of identitarian progressivism because the sort of you know most, most straightforward scorecard kind of account where this outline has been reached. So so there's need, there needs to be a next step, right? And so so perhaps in these weird ways, Obama does end up being part of a causal story of how we get to that much less healthy politics. But, but uh, you know, I, I, I deeply appreciate Obama for being a representative, I think, of that Black liberal tradition that goes back from from Frederick Douglass to, to Martin Luther King. And his presidency, as every president is mixed and with some successes and there's some mistakes in retrospect, but I think that's something that, uh, that deserves lasting credit and respect. We will get back to my interview with Yasha Monk in a minute. But first, this brief reminder that Quillette is more than a podcast. It's also a website full of great essays. This week, for instance, you'll find astrophysicist Lawrence Krauss on Academia's Missing Men, Heather MacDonald on Luis Rubiales' Infamous Kiss, and former Israeli diplomat Michael Oren on Golda Meir. And now back to my interview with Yasha Monk. You talk about how in 2014 you taught a course called Democracy in the Digital Age at Harvard, which sounds like the ultimate name for a course they teach at Harvard. And you also suggest that maybe you were a little naive about what you thought the internet could bring to democracy. This was the beginning of the Arab Spring, and the internet was seen as something that could open up totalitarian societies. 
Could you talk a little bit about what you've learned over the last decade about the effects of digital technology on the ideas you discuss in this book? You use Tumblr as an important case study, and I'm curious why you did that. Well, having read it, I'm no longer curious, but <laughs> some of our listeners may not even know what Tumblr is because I think its usage has maybe kind of crested a couple of years ago. Maybe it's still a thing. I don't know, but you don't hear as much about it. So I've been naive about lots of things in my life. I think I wasn't naive about the internet and, and democracy, but I was struck by the fact that at the time, my students were still really naive about it. This was mm. perhaps 2013, oh, 2014. So you were and, sophisticated. And they were dumb. I was, yeah, of course. I'm, I'm the narrator <laughs> of a book. Of course, yeah, I was sophisticated. Yeah, okay. But but at the time, I mean, it's hard to remember now, but 10 years ago, there was still this idea that social media connects people because yeah. it... Uh, reduces the cost of communication completely, and you can talk to anybody in the world, and we're all going to have this mutual understanding, and 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 we're going to seek out people very different from us and have these meaningful conversations. And of course, of course, what happened is is, is the opposite, right? That what people actually do is to find people who agree with them on everything and who share a lot of identity categories. And 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 I think sort of the founding moment of that was not, as you point out, you know, TikTok or, or, or Instagram or Threads or, or or Facebook or Twitter. It was actually uh, Tumblr, which predated most of those uh, platforms. Not it's a video them. service. Um, it is a kind of microblogging service where you can have little videos and memes and text and audio. It's 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 quite open to different forms of medium. Um, it was very popular among teenagers in the late 2000s and 2010s. Um, and one of the key things it allowed people to do, which, for example, Facebook didn't at the time, was to self-organize by a topic tag. Mm. So you could look at everybody who uh, had posted a particular kind of term, and, and that could become a, a principle for organizing. Gender fluid, for instance. Exactly. And so what that did was to radically expand the set of identities by which you could define yourself. If you go back to a high school... And the, formalized it, right? Right, right. Because if you go back to a high school in the 1990s, the, the kind of identities you can choose for yourself really depend. There's got to be like you know two or three percent of a population at least who has that identity. Because you need a few friends who share that identity with you, and your school has limited numbers, and so it just can't be too obscure, right? On Tumblr, suddenly you can find people with much rarer identities and construct and 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 invent those identities in this really mellifluous way. And so a lot of, particularly the gender identities, but also some other identities, uh, sexual identities, demisexual, for example, mm. or Libra gender, they all originate on Tumblr. And so suddenly you have a social media platform where a lot of the activity is these self-chosen, self-coined self, self uh, identities. And then you have to have a way for people with those different identities to actually be in communication with each other, to actually speak to each other. And for that, you need a kind of governing ideology. And that becomes a popularized, vulgarized, much more simplistic version of the more sophisticated, more serious ideas that we've chronicled in the conversation so far that I talk about in the first part of the book. You have uh, an interesting quote here, which I hadn't seen. This is Zach Goldberg, a doctoral student in political science at Georgia State University. Over the course of Obama's presidency, key concepts of the identity synthesis, this is you writing, like microaggression and white privilege, quote, went from being obscure fragments of academic jargon to commonplace journalistic language, end quote. And you have statistics that back up just the startling speed with which this linguistic transition occurred. Uh, one example here is that 
by one count, uh, use of the word racist went up an astonishing 700% in the eight years between 2011 and 2019 uh, in the New York Times, I think it was. Is this because the 18-year-olds who had maudlin Tumblr accounts just grew up and got jobs with newspapers? In the history of ideas, is that speed unusual? That's a great question. I think it is unusual. I don't think it's unheard of, but but it is striking how quickly this happens, right? One indication of that is that in that article I, I cited earlier by, by Kimberly Crenshaw, which celebrates the 30th anniversary of critical race theory, she says, man, it's amazing. We've built all this influence in law schools and in academia, and it's great. But of course, because of people like Obama, we're never going to have any influence in the world as a whole. Forget about that. And 10 years later, this popularized version of their ideas does become super influential. And I think that astounded her. And, and I think it is quite surprising, even in that kind of historical perspective. To answer the other strand of your question, uh, yeah, I think it is connected with what I'm calling the short march for the institutions. So the way in which students who are trained at universities where a lot of their humanities and social science courses mm -hmm. start to transmit the ideas of identity synthesis, in which many of the trainings they undergo um, uh, run by administrators who are much more far left and much less liberal than faculty members, um, uh, inculcate these ideas about microaggressions and all kinds of other things, white privilege and so on in them. Um, but there's also a media dynamic. Both Ezra Klein and Metaglesias have talked in interesting ways about how when Vox.com uh, was founded by them in 2013, most of its traffic came from the website. And so anything on the website had to appeal to a pretty broad audience. And what happens around 2015, 2016 is that most of it runs through social media. So suddenly most of the clicks you're getting is from people who click on something on so, Facebook. So by the way, just when you say the website, you're talking about the demise of the homepage. You're not just talking about the website. Yes. You're talking about the landing page, the homepage for the site. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. That, that makes it clearer. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so suddenly you don't have a constraint anymore. It doesn't matter if nine out of 10 Vox articles are boring to the average Vox reader. Because you don't have this landing page that everybody goes to in order mm -hmm. to find what we're going to read. And you have to keep them coming back. No, you find your readers on Twitter and on Facebook. And we write an article about Asian Americans or an article about veganism or an article about something that has a very strong either political cause-based network or identity group network on social media. That article is going to spread virally. And so these identity-based articles, which are in a way the sort of written form of what starts to take form on, on, on Tumblr a few years earlier, uh, does really good numbers. And, and you start to have these talented young journalists at Vox.com really figure out how to make those kinds of things viral. And at the same time, of course, newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post are under tremendous economic pressure because they have this cratering ad revenue and they need clicks desperately, right? And so how do they get the clicks? By hiring a lot of the graduates from those websites. And so you have the fascinating transformation of Vox itself from a kind of technocratic liberalism to a much more first-person, progressive, identity-driven uh, website for a lot of its content. And then you have the transformation of places like the Washington Post and the New York Times. And by the way, one interesting thing about those broader categories, um, like microaggression and white privilege and so on, that become much more common in the New York Times and Washington Post, is that that skyrockets in a way after Trump is elected and part of the reaction, but it actually predates him. By 2015, a lot of that shift has already happened. The last chapter of your book, arguably the last two chapters, is a kind of, not quite a self-help book, but it's sort of like 
a guide to the 17 reasons liberalism is awesome and proselytizing the the wonders of liberalism to your crazy brother-in-law. I'm a little more pessimistic than you because my view on this is that liberalism's virtue is that it's an imperfect system that, that history shows us is better than all the other alternatives. But the tools that liberalism gives us also give us the tools to amplify our complaints about liberalism. And the internet has turbocharged that. So for me, it's the internet versus liberalism, because if you're a progressive and you go on Twitter, it's a series of like, look how racist society is. Here's 17 videos of police officers beating, beating black people. And, and how can you defend a liberal order of things when, when this kind of thing happens? It's, it's right in front of your face. And so the imperfections of liberalism bombard you from that angle. Similarly, if you're a conservative and someone says, well, look at it, you know, here's 17 instances of illegal immigrants doing these horrible things. And, and you become fired up and you say, well, if liberalism means having a multicultural society, then screw that. To me, the central question is the emotional immediacy of this outrage porn that you see on social media, which amplifies the pre-existing vulnerability of liberalism to attacks based on its imperfections, its inevitable imperfections. I'm not sure liberalism wins that war. This is a great question. Let me start with with one thing, but I think we'll, we'll we'll give a right background here. You know, there's been a debate about whether you can define wokeness, and there's been some viral clips of people failing to define wokeness and so on. Mandel, I think, uh, was that her name? Um, I think that's right, yeah. I feel terrible um, for that woman. And she was, by the way, having a personal situation in the background. Yeah, and she said that she sort of froze up and so on, which can happen when you're on a, on a, on a live broadcast. Uh, but I think a lot of people who are rightly worried about these ideas do have trouble explaining very clearly what it is they're worried about. Here, I think, is the rational reconstruction, the really sort of core of, of the ideology we're dealing with. Number one, the key way to understand the world, the key prism for understanding anything in the world is race and gender and sexual orientation. That's what something like Robin DiAngelo says, that whenever a white person interrupts a black person, they're bringing the whole apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them, which makes me think that D'Angelo doesn't have any black friends because part of friendship. I've interrupted you a lot, like can, and yeah. that was that wasn't my intention. Just so I, I mean, think Canadian supremacy that you're pretty much yeah. The second point is that all of these universal values and neutral uh, rules, uh, I think, as I said earlier, they're really just pulling the wool over people's eyes. Right? It's it's the whole point of them. The purpose of the United States Constitution is to hide and perpetuate the forms of racial and other discrimination that have always stood at the core of, you know, a place like the United States. And then the third is, therefore, we should rip up those kind of rules and norms. And as Bell would say, you know, separate but truly equal, right? Like build a society in which how you treat it does explicitly depend on the group you're from, except that now we're going to treat sort of marginalized groups better than the non-marginalized ones. Now, I agree with you that social media helps to make some of these ideas plausible because it brings often deserved attention to racial injustices and because it has a negativity bias. So it makes it really yeah. easy to think, hey, racism, as, as Bell said, is permanent. There's no improvement. America today is as racist as it was in 1950 or 1850. If you knew anything about what America... It makes the notion of progress impossible. Right, right. Um, and, and if you know anything about America in 1950 or 1850, you know that it was a much, 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 much worse yeah. place. But but that's not what it looks like on Twitter, Right. So, so then liberals have this response, I think, to those three core postulates, which is to say, hey, no, you know, 
these categories of identity, race, gender, and sexual orientation, they matter. And a lot of situations you can only explain through them. But there's other categories that matter too. Class matters, as yeah. we said at the beginning of the conversation. Religion matters. Personal views matter. Um, ideology matters. Somebody's moral character matters. Somebody's effort matters. All kinds of things matter. And how to understand a situation depends on the particular circumstance. Number one. Number two. Yes, of course. Frederick Douglass was right to say that it was hypocritical to celebrate the 4th of July when people were still enslaved. But you know what? By insisting on these universal values, that is a lot of how we have made progress over time. And America today is better than it was in the past. And so therefore, number three, no, we shouldn't rip up the US Constitution, the Bill of Rights. We should try to live up to the most noble ideals within it. Now, I agree with you that often social media is a hard place to make those kinds of arguments. And that puts liberals at a disadvantage. But I also think that even for few people can define liberalism, few people can explain its principles succinctly, we do live in a pretty liberal culture. And when institutions violate basic liberal norms, when we treat people unfairly, when people are forced to pay lip service to ideas we don't quite believe in the workplace, when people are fired for, for, for deeply unfair reasons because they're you know, accused of something they didn't do or what they've said has been taken completely out of context or they didn't really say anything offensive. There is also a pretty healthy moral instinct to say something's wrong here. And I've seen that among my, my friends. I have an acquaintance who was always skeptical when I would discuss some of the shortcomings of, of the identity trap and, and, and talk about its dangers. And he was much more progressive than I am and thought, you know, Yasha is going off on this thing again. And when I saw this friend after the pandemic and the organization that she's a part of had t- torn itself apart yeah. over the course of the pandemic in all of those kinds of ways. And she saw me at a gathering and she made a beeline straight for me and said, Yasha, I, I, I finally get what you've been talking about. You know, I've come to agree with a lot of the stuff because of the experiences that I've had in this context. And so, yes, social media presents a problem in that way, but I think ultimately a lot of people do have liberal instincts and they notice those liberal instincts when liberal norms are violated. And that is part of a course correction. So I think this is going to be a real intellectual battle for the next 20 years. And the outcome is not foreordained. It depends on whether we are able to make the right arguments and to argue against these ideas with full hearts and clear minds. Yasha Monk's new book is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time available on Amazon and pretty much wherever you might buy a book. My understanding is it's selling pretty well and you're getting lots of media attention. So congratulations for that. And thank thank you. you for appearing on the Quillette Podcast. This is a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 